the Roaring Twenties. One hundred years ago, the world was enjoying a golden age of new technology. Automobiles were making long-distance travel more accessible for millions. Airplanes were beginning to cross oceans, taking hours to do what ships once did in days. And explorers, as always, were keen to put humanity's latest innovations to use in the field. Among those innovations was the ill-fated airship Italia, which set off from Milan with 20 people in its belly, destined for the North Pole. What happened next is one of the most harrowing tales of polar exploration in history, one in which today's guest is a bona fide expert. Welcome to the Get Lost Podcast. This is a podcast takeover. I'm your guest host, Meredith Hackwith-Edwards. It's a mouthful, I know. Normally, I'm running my mouth on my ADD-friendly personal growth podcast, Meredith For Real, The Curious Introvert. But today, I have the pleasure to sit in for my pod pal, Joe Sills, while he's away on assignment. And I'm happy to say that I have with me Mark Pising, a freelance journalist who writes on technology and culture. And his obsession with aviation and history has led him on some notable adventures, digging up skeletons of gladiators in a lost Roman city, exploring minefields in Bosnia, and traveling to the Arctic to find forgotten manuscripts and one of the last people still alive who knew Umberto Nobile, the protagonist in his book, In Four Down, The Hunt for the Arctic Airship Italia. It's a historical account of the ups and downs and egos behind 1920s Arctic exploration. Today, he's going to bring the story off the pages and into our ears. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Meredith. That's a brilliant introduction. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So where did your journey to aviation and history obsession begin? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I guess it's more kind of adventure I became obsessed with. I mean, I grew up with the stories of Roald Amundsen, who's one of the, the antagonists in the book, and Captain Scott in the race to the South Pole. And I suppose those stories of kind of sacrifice and adventure and near death, I guess, really grabbed my emotion as a kid. And then I suppose the ideas and in my imagination just kind of carried on with those ideas with kind of Indiana Jones, which I know is a bit problematic in some ways, but for you know, a kid that was kind of very powerful storytelling. And then so later on, Books like The Lost City of Zed and Into Thin Air and movies like Touching the Void really kind of started to move my mind into the ice, I guess. And really ready for when I, I discovered this amazing story about the crashed airship at the North Pole. Well, how did you come across this story? I was researching another book. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a rabbit trail? I love that. <laughs> I opened this book doing my research and there was this little story about four lines about this airship that crashed at the North Pole. And the moment I read that story, I had this kind of almost kind of weird instinctive recognition that this is this story. This is the story I need to write about. But of course, I was developing another story. So I put it in there and my agent you know, pitched it to various publishers. I was lucky enough that one guy went, that's the story that we want. We don't want your other book. We don't want your book that you've been working on, but we want a story about that. And the moment I saw that email, it just utterly clicked. That this is the story I needed to tell. That's a heavy topic for any book because it's so reference heavy yeah. but definitely your yeah. first book that I mean that <laughs> is quite the feat you were it's almost like as I was learning about these two explorers that we're going to talk about today I seemed to observe that like they definitely had an all or nothing 
approach to life. Yes. You know, they were well-funded or completely bankrupt. They, you know, (laughs) it was like they were alive and posing for cameras or they were on the brink of death. And it seems like you followed suit with, I've never written a book and now I have this, I mean, it's, it's, you know, two inch thick book (laughs) filled with historical references. But I love the way that it lays out the accounts as a story. You don't have to try hard to put the pieces together with Mm. your book. That's really nice that you said that. I think it was, I was lucky in the sense the story told itself and the characters were amazing. The technology, you know, was like, you know, steampunk come to life. It really was. It really was. And you're right. I mean, I think what struck me is on the one sense, the world I entered through a portal of my imagination, I guess, you know, seemed on one level very similar to us. You know, you had celebrities, you had the newspapers who wanted exclusives, you had kind of fake news, you had big egos, new technology trying to risk, you know, push everything to the extreme. Uh, you had the right stuff. I think these people were more upper class than some of the NASA astronauts back in the 60s. As you said, they were wealthier or had access to a lot more money. But I think the thing that really struck me that made you suddenly realise how alien life was, was their willingness to die. Yeah. Or to accept death. It's astonishing how casual they were about their own lives, you know, that they would take these planes into the Arctic, which had never been tested before in these conditions, and they didn't care or they couldn't express that. That willingness to die and that kind of different view of risk, I think, suddenly made them feel like a very alien time. It was was such a strange time, too, because when you look at historically, it was like, okay, the Great War, a.k.a. World War I, and then right away the Spanish flu... And then World War II and sandwiched in the middle of of all of that are these explorations to the Arctic. I think in total during this time frame, there were like, what, 17 or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, that seems like an odd odd timing in a way, but maybe it was good that they were all in and had little regard for their lives considering the timeline ahead of them that they weren't aware of. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Probably best, yeah. Someone said this to me, what they must have seen as well. And they survived, they'd gone through the First World War, as you said, and the Spanish flu. Death must have been all around them. I guess that probably changes your view of the value of life. And you might perceive your life to be shorter anyway. Exactly, yeah. Like, you know, you're not imagining yourself living into your 80s. Maybe you are imagining that you'll make it to 50. And so yeah. when you're strong, healthy 26-year-old, you you need to, you know, go into the Arctic with wool coats. <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> as we'll get into, they learned how not to have just wool coats, uh, thanks to yes. the Inuit people that were generous enough to give them some life-saving tips. But let's talk about the characters because okay. historical accounts in school or, you know, short summaries on the internet, they never really fully paint the picture of the people involved. They're always way more colorful, way more complex than what fits into the chapters of school books. So can you start by describing the two main characters that we're featuring today? Yeah, I mean, I know it's a bit of a pun, but it's a story of polar opposites. Oh, I see what you did there. That was good. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. So on one hand, you've got Roald Amundsen, who's like, if you closed your eyes and had to describe polar explorer I mean he is the epitome of what you'd imagine I mean he is very tall very masculine very strong usually covered in fur and skis he's tough he never smiles or at least in any of the pictures I've seen I'm sure someone will say there is a picture of him smiling (laughs) and laughing but I've never seen a picture of him smiling I mean he put his life on the line so many times and he achieved in one lifetime much more than many of us could achieve in multiple lifetimes you know if we had the chance he breaks so many records. He risks his life so often in really tough conditions in the most extreme environments on the world. His nickname was called The Chief. He kind of believed that polar survival depending on having only one person in charge. So he was ruthless about eliminating anyone willing to challenge his authority. And then even on his trip to Antarctica and his return trip, one of his team members was so traumatized that later on he would commit suicide. That is the allegation. Oh, wow. So he was not a nice guy. He didn't achieve all this by being nice, I guess. So I know that's probably a controversial statement. but <laughs> I would like to think that we nice humans would achieve something, but I definitely <laughs> agree with the psychological profile of Amundsen because you know I was reading about like he I think he went to medical school for a minute yep. and then his mom died and he had a lot of affairs and he literally was outrunning his debtors his creditors yes <laughs> yeah. so yeah he seems like quite the character what would you describe his primary motivation for this exploration as if you had to take a guess I'm an ego uh, money, 
I mean, I mean, this was his business. He coined the phrase the hero business. So this is how he made his money. And by the time we get to this book, I mean, he's thinking about his retirement. So he was thinking, you know, oh, like lots okay. of people these days, he didn't have a, probably have a pension. So, you know, this is how he was going to try and make his money. And, uh, and I guess there's also patriotism and imperialism. I mean, certainly in Britain, I know attitudes are different in America. I mean, patriotism is a thing most lot of British people feel very uncomfortable with. So this idea of, of that as the motivation is quite hard to understand. And conquest, I and mean, he wanted to claim land for Norway and his king. Uh, that's in there as well. So he's like the Norwegian version of the American on spring break wearing American flag board <laughs> shorts. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's an element of that. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. And what about Nobile? How would you describe him? I mean, this is where, I mean, he is totally the opposite of Amundsen. I mean, in a sense, he's the future. I mean, he's descended from the royal families, so the aristocratic families that used to run southern Italy. He was, grew up on the Amalfi Coast, which is one of the most beautiful parts of Italy, the sun-drenched Mediterranean. He was a Genius. I suppose we would call him a prodigy. Is that the right phrase? Yeah. The right mm -hmm. word. And he was an engineer, a thinker, a designer, a pilot. He had a functional relationship. He had a wife and he had a daughter. He had a dog as well that went everywhere with him that Amundsen could never stand. So he... <laughs> Yeah, he was good looking and uh, Amundsen I'm sure was really attracted judging from the, the mistresses and lovers he had but it's a very different kind of attraction I mean nobody looked more like a Hollywood film star of the period his clothes seemed tailored even his like yes. his you know travel there's this photo in your book of him on skis and he's looking back at yes. the camera over his left shoulder and his suit looks tailored it's like got a waist and a belt and yep. I mean it looks looks very Italian. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, he looked good, I think. You know, so he was total opposite of Amundsen. And I guess that's where the problem came, that they were from very two very different worlds and they didn't probably really understand each other. And Amundsen certainly didn't understand the forces that were pushing nobody forward. So. And what were those forces? What was um, Nobile's motivation? Well, I guess if Armisen had looked at nobody's face very carefully, you know, he probably would have seen that behind the smile, there was a slight sense of nervousness because two men really behind him. One was Benito Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy, and he wanted to use aviation and this airship flight as a way to kind of validate his regime through, you know, kind of technological progress and modernization. And then with him, there was another guy called Italio Balbo, and he was also one of the guys who founded the fascist party in Italy, and together they'd helped force their way in to the Italian government and they march in Rome and the king had given them allowed them to form a government and he's very ruthless Italia Barbo it was said that even Mussolini was scared of him well that's saying uh, something since Hitler actually looked up to Mussolini exactly exactly <laughs> yeah so you wouldn't want to cross Balbo and he had the vision for the modernization of the Italian Air Force and it wasn't about airships and he thought there was no room for prima donnas in the Italian Air Force and that meant people like Nobly who wanted to break records and become famous although he was one of those men himself ironically so he was willing to pounce on any slip up Nobly made in order to get rid of him really Hello, Get Lost Podcast fans. It's your girl, Margreen. You might remember me from our Rhino Rescue episode a while ago. This week, Joe is on location with me in Africa, and he asked me to read out this ad too, so here it goes. When we're bouncing around the safari truck for science, you can usually find Joe eating apples or pointing a giant camera lens at wildlife. If you know the show, you probably know that he's just a former pizza delivery guy and he cannot afford to own a giant African safari lens for his camera. And that is why Joe uses lensrentals.com to get the gear he needs for expeditions like ours. Right now we have a Nikon 500mm f5.6 to get those close-up elephant and lino photos from a safe distance. And if you are someone that needs a badass lens for your own photos, you should use lensrentals.com to do the same. You can get 15% off your next rental by using promo code GETLOST15 at Lens Rentals or click the link in our show bio to learn more. And remember, promo code GETLOST15 at lensrentals.com. Now back to the show. This sounds like the most terrible reality TV show set, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we take two men yes. with big egos and we put them on an island, put them on a ship. Yes. So let's kick off our mind travel. Okay. I, I feel like I should be wearing mittens or something, but I'm in yeah, Florida. It's a, bit, it's a bit hot, not quite the right temperature. It's, yeah. it's very warm here. So I will just have to pretend that I am in cooler weather. Where does our story begin, especially with these two characters and how they got to the Arctic? 
Well, I mean, I would begin the story in 1924 at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, which doesn't seem the most likely place to uh, for an Arctic adventure story to begin. But you see, the thing about Armistead, he lived at the extreme, worked at the extreme, but he loved luxury hotels. And even though he was bankrupt, somehow he always managed to stay in one. So, so he, there he was in the Astoria. He was bankrupt. His debtors were putting the final demands under his hotel bedroom door, or I suppose it was probably a suite, while he was hiding in bed, I would imagine, <laughs> getting feeling worse and worse. I guess we would call it depression, but I would imagine they wouldn't have called that in those days. And then the phone rang. At the other end of the phone in the lobby is a guy called Lincoln Ellsworth. He was about to solve all his problems. And Lincoln Ellsworth was the son of James Ellsworth, who's like a kind of millionaire industrialist. And Lincoln Ellsworth had kind of rejected a lot of the values of his class, I guess. I mean, he didn't want to live in New York as a wealthy bachelor. He wanted to kind of prove his masculinity in a very traditional way, you know, in the Rockies, building railway lines, working as a navvy, as a survey, in really, really tough conditions. And he kind of worshipped people like Sheriff White Earp, if you kind of into your westerns and the gunfight at the OK Corral. And he even wore his wedding ring later on for good luck, which is a bit bizarre. Huh. But of course, he also worshipped Raoul Amundsen. His father agreed to pay for the next expedition Amundsen went on. And then after his father passed away, he was then prepared to bankroll Amundsen's following flights. So, you know, Amundsen got a, got a check, open checkbook, really. So it was pretty good timing. And so Amundsen had already tried to fly to the Arctic, fly over the North Pole to the other side to Alaska at least twice. And but both times have been a disaster. You know, he hadn't even got to Sarbard or, or particularly, and he lost a lot of money. So he was really desperate to do it again a th third time. In the past, he was kind of quite keen to fly from Alaska, I suppose, over the North Pole to Norway to Svalbard. This time, he wanted to go the other way around to get to Svalbard first and then fly back over the top of the world. And the thing about Svalbard, no one's ever heard of it, but if you look on the map, you've got the North Pole, it's kind of 500 miles to the south of the North Pole towards Scotland. If you draw a line between North Pole and Scotland, you follow that line and you're going to get to Svalbard, which is kind of a large archipelago, really cold, covered in ice most of the time, and cut off from the rest of the world for half the year. But it's the closest place to kind of fly from to get to the North Pole and, and explore the land beyond. Because this is something that's strange about this time. So many people thought on the other side of the North Pole there could be a lost continent. Certainly there were hundreds of thousands of square miles of unexplored land. So they wanted to go beyond the North Pole into this area and find out what was there. Interesting. So so they were able to, with Ellsworth's money, they were able to get their flying boats up to Svalbard from the Norway. It's a bit too far to fly, so you kind of had to take them to pieces and kind of ship them up, usually in a trawl ship or old whaling ship, up to Svalbard and right up to the top of Svalbard called Kings Bay, which is it's actually really beautiful, but it's surrounded by mountains and there's a mine. So it's this weird kind of mixture of the beauty of nature and mining and the blackness of coal. It looks like a strange place. So this is Amundsen's uh, before he went with Nobile together. Yes. This is when he is testing the waters, but he's got the money of the American man. Exactly. Okay. So this is his, uh, this is going to lead him to meet Nobly. And so they take off in these two advanced state-of-the-art flying boats in May 1925. And they fly for about eight hours, which takes them you know, 100 or so miles from the North Pole. Then they start to run out of petrol, so they have to land. And when they land, one of them crashes. Because the thing about the Arctic ice is that it looks very smooth when you're flying across it in the Boeing or something like that, or even you know any kind of aircraft. But when you get closer, it is rough. It is different levels. There's kind of little heaps of ice and snow. It cracks open, and what appears to be open water at one minute can rapidly close the next, crushing anything that's caught, you know, caught there. So they had to land in this, and one of the planes got written off as they landed, and that left only one plane. And while they had enough fuel to take off again, they had to build a runway for it to take off on, and that was going to be a really difficult task. And I think Ellsworth said, he wrote a brilliant quote, in the utter silence, this seemed to me to be the kingdom of death. Because they had no tools, uh, and they were going to have to build a runway out of tools they could make from the kind of wreckage of the aircraft and survive, you know, in terrible conditions and with little hope of rescue. Because that's the thing about these early aircraft. There was no real hope of rescue. There weren't many aircraft in the Arctic. No one really knew where you were. 
what your plans were. Armisen especially kept his plans very secret, usually from the rivals in the past. But at this stage, it's starting to make his situation more dangerous because no one knew where he was. No one knew whether if he'd crashed, he was going to try and walk out, which is what these explorers always like to talk about, walking out over the sea ice. They kind of romanticised it, even though it was very, very dangerous and will probably lead to their death. Or whether he was going to fly on into Alaska. So no one really knew. And there was also there was the issue of publicity. It was also a really good stunt to disappear and then suddenly reappear. You know, I suppose when you got back to America, you'd sell more books, you'll earn more in lecture fees. And I actually Googled Amazon disappearance and I found so many stories in the New York Times archive. It's something that he pulled lots of times. So no one quite knew. Oh, wait. Uh, so, so he cried a... wolf a few times yeah. just for the sake yes, of drama. Yeah. What a character. Well, that's a, that's a suspicion. Oh, uh, that, interesting. That, that okay. Did. So we can't speak yeah. to his motivations you know yeah 100 I, I think if you're cynical like i am i tend to believe that that was the case but uh, <laughs> but you can't be sure so, so there's a big hullabaloo in, in america the president uh coolidge was under a lot of pressure to send a rescue mission but he was a bit wiser and i, I think he kind of suspected armelson might just reappear uh, which is going to cause problems later on in the story uh, and so he's under a lot of pressure to send one of the giant american airships that they had and there's a brilliant quote from the new york times about the probably every officer connected with this aeronautical service of the navy will volunteer in the event that's a call for help is made on the behalf of Amundsen. So if you're going to be cynical, this is a great media strategy. You get the front pages of the New York Times, the president's talking about you. So if you want to be cynical, that is. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a good strategy. I mean, you're in media, so I think you see yeah. you see this all of this from a unique perspective. You know, you talked about fake news in the beginning and, yeah. and how, you know, I know from reading your book that that kind of worked against them later yeah. on, but it's interesting to hear your perspective on all of it. So I appreciate the cynicism. So anytime you <laughs> want to add a scoop of cynicism, you just go ahead. No, we'll do. Okay. A double scoop perhaps coming up. Excellent. Maybe. Okay. Uh, I'm ready. <laughs> so they get towards the, the end of their food. Their food's running out. They built the runway. And the thing is the sea ice keeps moving and destroying the runway, which must be totally demoralizing. But by middle of June, they've got the runway. The plane's refuel this is the last chance really they run out of food if they can't take off now they may well i suppose they're going to make the ultimate sacrifice and probably die and try and walk across the ice but they know that's going to be to the death ellsworth i mean he's a great writer and he wrote men fight for their lives to the last inch so they make six attempts to take off and they can't and the plane's really heavy because there's six people in the plane the runway's probably not quite long enough and then finally on the seventh attempt they get up into the air and eventually make it back towards Svalbard, back south, about eight hours of fuel. And then they run out of petrol, land on the sea, and the fishing boat finds them. And the first thing one of the crew says to Armisen when they see sees him, they go, you're supposed to be dead. So this, <laughs> It's brilliant. Yeah, so there's a sense of his immortality. I guess, again, this is later on in the story, this is going to hurt him, but the sense of he can't die, you know, almost never dies, whatever the situation. So after that experience, quite rightly, he goes, I don't want to fly in a fixed-wing aircraft to the North Pole ever again. I want an airship. Airships can stay afloat for a long time in comparative luxury compared to one of these primitive aircraft, and they can travel for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So he wants an airship. But time is running out for him. I mean, I'm looking at the front cover of the New York Times, and there's a brilliant headline, mass attack on the polar regions begins soon. You know, so there's going to be, I think they count, they're saying there's over, the expedition will probably go into the frozen north this summer. Explorers hope to find a new continent and to be open and to open an air route between Europe and Asia. Preparations underway. And I think that they count up to at least 10 different expeditions that might head off into the Arctic. So he's under pressure now to find this airship and to get back into the game. And there's really, at that time, there's only two people you talk to if you want an airship. One was Umberto Nobly, as we've introduced before, and another another guy was Hugo Egner of the kind of famous Zeppelin aircraft company in Germany. The advantage Nobly had was that he had an airship ready to go, ready to fly to the North Pole, a bit small, but it was there, it was built, it was ready. Eckner, because of the Treaty of Versailles at the end of the First World War, which limited German aviation, he could only build an airship if he had the permission of the allied countries like Britain and America to do so. So before he could build Amundsen an airship, he needed to get the permission. So if Amundsen went with Eckner, it would be a lot longer journey in terms of building the ship ready to go. But he could go straight away if he kind of took Nobody's airship. So I guess it was a no-brainer. 
And there were lots of contractual negotiations about how many people were going to go on the airship, how many Norwegians versus how many Italians, because that could have a big issue if they found this lost continent. And there were more Italians on the on the airship than Norwegians, and the Italians and Mussolini could perhaps claim this land. So there's lots of issues about who's going to go on board the ship, the route, and so on. So they took this kind of, and also more kind of, I suppose, celebrity things of who's going to write the book, whose name is going, you know. <laughs> And, and that meant you were important, I guess, if you had the name in the book, you wrote a chapter. And also, what's the expedition going to be called? What was the branding going to be called? What was the branding going to be? That is was so interesting. Be, <laughs> yeah, was it going to be Amundsen Ellsworth Expedition or Amundsen Ellsworth Nobly Expedition? And uh, In the American South, we um, call that dick swinging. <laughs> that's a good description <laughs> for it. That's a really good. Uh, that's hilarious. All, all the pressure to yeah. be the first to do this, you yeah. know, and then they're arguing about all of this, these details. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and I suppose by this point, Nobly probably had the edge because Armisen had signed the contract. Armisen brought the airship with Ellsworth's money, but Nobly it was still in Italy. <laughs> and, and the trained airship crew were Italian and he had built it and designed it and it was sitting in Rome. And I guess if Armisen didn't agree really to what the Italians wanted, it wasn't going to be leaving Italy anytime soon. So he probably had the edge in these negotiations. And also behind him, remember, there's Mussolini and Balbo. And Mussolini, who wants this to be a success, Balbo waiting for him to fail. And so there's a lot of pressure on external motivation on Nobly as well. So, so, so in the end, they set off in May. The first thing they have to do is build a hangar, really, at Svalbard, because the airship will be destroyed by strong winds by you know, the horrible storms they have in the Arctic. So in the winter before they left, these Italian workmen went up to Svalbard in the last boat before the ice froze. Because remember I said Svalbard gets kind of cut off in the ice. And the last boat up with lots of wood and iron, and they build this amazing alien-like hangar up there over in the pitch black with just a couple of simple electric lights and simple electric tools from the mine that's there, the coal mine that's there, through the Arctic night, which is so cold, so disorientating for Italians from the Mediterranean. It's amazing, a triumph. And it's there for when they arrive, May 1926, ready for the attempt to fly over the North Pole to Alaska. And the airship just about, just about squeezes into, into it when they arrive. <laughs> just barely. Just barely. Because I suppose it, they were trying to economize as well. <laughs> There's a lot of material they had to ship up. But the thing was, when they get to Kings Bay, when they get to Svalbard, they're not alone at the North Pole. They're not, sorry, they're not alone at, at Kings Bay and Svalbard. And there's Richard Bird, who's a, a famous American explorer, aviator. He gets to, he gets there first with a, with a simple aircraft, a tri-motor, three-engine aircraft. And he just wants to sprint to the North Pole and fly back. That sounds very casual. Like, I'm just going to go to the Circle exactly. K real quick. Just going to go to the Piggly Wiggly, <laughs> come back, get some soda and some chips. And yeah, no big deal. Yeah, that's right. I, mean, I, th I think he... On the surface, they all have to be very nonchalant. You know, you're not allowed to kind of show your emotions. So Amazon appeared just to say, that's fine, you go for it, you know, Richard, old boy. And <laughs> depending on your point of view, Amazon's men, who may or may not have been told to do this, certainly engaged in a lot of dirty tricks, from, certainly from Bird's perspective. So Amazon may have been charming on one way. He, he Perhaps he wasn't being so charming and he was displaying his ruthlessness perhaps in a more underhand way. But still, nobody wanted to go race Bird to the North Pole the moment they arrived. But the airship, you know, it was a long flight from Italy. The airship needed to be repaired and it would be very risky to, to engage in this race. And perhaps Armisen remembered that what happened to, to Scott on the race to the to the South Pole as well. And it wasn't necessarily a good idea to, to be in this kind of situation in such extreme conditions. So Richard Bird leaves in the middle of the night, gets to the North Pole and returns. So in one sense, he appears to have beaten Armisen nobly to the North Pole, but very quickly people start going, well, that was quite a fast journey. Yeah. Did you actually make it to the North Pole? Uh, so rumours started you know, started spreading. Norwegians were obviously a bit bitter because it should have been Amundsen, not this American, a very well-funded American. So again, you've got this kind of nice element to it. You know, he was supported by Ford, Rockefeller, you know, you're very well resourced. And the Italians got in the act. Mussolini encouraged the newspapers to start spreading come these rumours that perhaps he cheated, perhaps he didn't make it, perhaps he came back before he got there. 
know, or it could just be a simple thing, you know, they're in nearly open air cockpit, so working in the cold, they're trying to make notes and navigate using very basic instruments with a pad on their, you know, on their knees, basically. So perhaps they just made a mistake. But that flight has never really, it's been very controversial. And lots of people don't think Bird made it to the North Pole, near the North Pole, but not quite to the North Poles. So when they set off, when Amundsen and Nobley set off in early May to fly to the North Pole, they had every reason to expect that Bird had got there first. So their real goal was to get beyond the North Pole and then over the other side into Alaska, over this kind of area that's called unknown or uncharted on maps. I'm looking at a map with the New York Times. On the other side of North Pole is this huge shaded area called Unexplored. Oh, wow. Can you imagine uh, is, what that must have felt like? Like, exactly. you know, just what will happen? What will be there? That's so exciting. It is. And there's lots of stories about what people thought would be there. I'm and sure. Civilizations and land and all sorts of things. So, so they get to the North Pole successfully, which is good. And they drop on some flags, which is obviously the key ritual, isn't it? And they drop flags onto the ice. The Americans and Norwegians have a kind of small flags, uh, and then suddenly the Italians pull out this, this massive flag, uh, <laughs> which dwarfs in size the, the Americans and the Norwegians. That's kind of symbolised a lot of the tensions between the people whose expedition was this, who had the right to claim any land. And this wonderful description of the reaching North Pole. The engine of the airship slowed down, a deafening sound replaced by a different kind of roar, that of the wind blowing around the celluloid windows. As their ears grew used to the relative quietness other than the wind, men could hear the creaking of the airship's frame as the Norwegian name of the airship circled tightly over absolute zero degrees at 600 feet. Then there was the wind, its ferocious gusts, making it impossible to use nobly sky anchor to land men on the ice, which is always the dream. Uh, instead, they had to be content with dropping the flags. And the Italian said, ours was the most beautiful. And sh shortly after that, at 1.30 a.m. in the morning on May the 12th, 1926, the airships piloted and designed by Colonel Nobly flew into the beyond for the first time. And no one ever had flown into the last hole on the map before. So not even Amundsen. Wow. So it's a great kind of moment. What might they find there? So they were celebrating, high-fiving each other, kind of. High-fiving kind each of. other. Yeah, with, kind of with knives behind their back. Exactly, the exactly. Whose flag is the biggest? You boys. Exactly. You boys, always with <laughs> your measuring. I know, I know. I'm ashamed of my gender sometimes. <laughs> so then what happened after their celebration? Well, they managed to fly across the unknown, across through this unknown area, and they can't see any land. It just seems to be sea and, and pack ice, although other explorers would say, would later say, well, they they flew a very narrow route and there's lots of clouds, so perhaps they missed the land. It didn't stop all the stories and all the hope that there was a continent out there, but they flew across, they got to Alaska and the weather was terrible. They had to kind of navigate, fly at very low altitudes to avoid the fog. There were the mountains as well, so they had to try and, you know, avoid hitting the mountains, but there was no kind of GPS. They were trying to work out where they were all the time by the sun, so they had to periodically go, go above the clouds trying to use a sextant to work out where they were they were exhausted they were tired there was a terrible time really but they made it <laughs> they, they got to alaska they didn't get to where they wanted to go which was gnome but they got to a place called teller and nobody just went everyone's exhausted the weather looks even worse up ahead they only had about 60 miles to go but we're going to land now and the problem was airships are easy to land but they're hard to keep down because obviously they want to float away. And it usually takes about 200 men to keep an airship down, or you need an airship mast to tie them to. And there was all that waiting for them in Nome, but not at Teller. So the moment they landed, they had to rapidly leave the airship, jump out and deflate it very, very quickly. So this poor, grand, I suppose brave, if it can be brave airship, ended up being this heap of kind of, kind of envelope and silver skin and metal metal frames, which kind of all the frames of the airship were left exposed, uh, and the crumpled heat in Alaska. I mean, it's a real sad end to a really famous, you know, heroic ship. And obviously, then the souvenir hunters came in and there's, you know, to nick it. And there's some very powerful pictures of Inuit people taken in front of the wreck. Especially, I remember one picture of the Inuit woman and her child standing in front of this wreck. That must have seen. Like, a, I suppose, to us, like a UFO had crashed. I guess they hadn't seen an airship before. So it'd been something unknown for them. And that was the end of the ship and never never made it back to Italy. And I think there's a few bits in museums around America, but probably a lot in people's homes in Alaska, I would have thought. Wow. And uh, so that's sad. 
But then the tensions between Armas and Nobly explode because Mussolini makes it very clear that his job is now to seize the credit for the expedition for Italy and the fascist government. And also, I think Nobly feels that he, you know, he designed the airship, he piloted it, he deserves the credit too. And they rapidly fall out, and Armisen kind of slinks back to Norway in a furious mood, depressed. He thought this was going to be his last big paycheck, and the Italians have, have muscled in on it. And it's, it's Nobly and his men who are fated as they travel around the United States, met by thousands of people. It's Nobly who's called the New Columbus, and I know that name is problematic, but at the time it was seen as, as praise. And Armisen wasn't. as Nobly who met you know, the president and his dog, even weed on the White House office carpet, which is... <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure whether it's a political statement or not by the dog, but... Uh, it's amazing. And he was greeted in, in New York you know, by the mayor on the steps of New York City. The New York Times, when they landed in Alaska, had three full pages devoted to this feat, which was considered to be one of the greatest aviation achievements of the century, which we've totally forgotten about now, which is quite sad. But there's a darker story to this as well. I mean, there weren't thousands of people at these every city by accident. The Fascist League of North America helped organise the Italian diaspora to turn out. I'm sure they would have done anyway, but they had this organisation behind them. And when they got to New York, there was almost a riot when he nobly arrived at Grand Central Station. And the police were almost overwhelmed by hundreds of Italian men dressed in the black shirts, Mussolini's black shirt outfit, in the middle of New York. And if you've seen Man in the High Castle TV series on Amazon, you know, it felt, felt very much like that. Hundreds of black shirts in the middle of New York and such an iconic location as Grand Central Station. So so the drama continued even drama after continued. these characters went their respective ways after this trip. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, Amazon would go quiet for a while and then just kind of bitterly sink into depression and he'd write this awful book, which he shouldn't have had published, which slagged everyone else off in his life. Everything was everyone else's fault rather than his own. And Nobi went back to Italy, a hero. But the problem was, you know, he was a hero, he was famous. He was now totally in the gunsight of Italia Balbo, uh, kind of Mussolini's second, the man Mussolini is scared of himself. And he sees, I think, nobody a threat to his own position, his own view of the future of aviation. So nobody makes one big mistake. He goes to Japan, I suppose, to get more acclaim. The Japanese have built one of his airships, so he has to train the crew and get, and, and get famous. I mean, there are textbooks in Japan published with his airship on the front, with him in the front. I mean, he's a big hero. But when he's gone, Balbo destroys this massive airship he's trying to build for his next uh, kind of Arctic flight. Not only does he destroy it, Mussolini had approved it. This is how powerful this guy is. Even though Mussolini had approved it, Barbo gets it destroyed, not only just destroyed, gets the metal components melted down so there's no way nobody can get back to Italy to rebuild it. And if he's going to go back to the Arctic, he's got to go back to the Arctic in another small airship, which is kind of more dangerous. So when nobody gets back, he's furious with Barbo. He doesn't go, and this is kind of minor stuff, this is very powerful things. Protocol says he should go and see Barbo, who's now his boss, when he gets back, just out of kind of courtesy. But he's so furious with Balbo, he doesn't. He refuses to. And then when he next has, has a meeting with Mussolini, he's used to having meet, meetings with Mussolini, kind of just the two of them. Suddenly, Balbo is now there. He's never going to see Mussolini again by himself. And Mussolini is reluctant to let him go back to the Arctic because I mean, we'll talk about my experiences a bit later, but one of the things I found was when I went up to Svalbard, kind of drills down into your soul. There's something about the place, something about the Arctic, the freedom, the beauty, and something totally compelling. So I could, I could see why nobody really wanted to go back there. I could also see that he wanted perhaps to escape kind of fascist Italy, be free, be a hero again, rather than always having to look behind his back, I guess, on the streets of Rome. So he persuades Mussolini to, to let him go. Mussolini is very reluctant to let him go. And as a famous warning, he says, perhaps it would be better not to tempt fate a second time. Hmm. But he reluctantly gives his permission. But then apparently after nobody left the room, Barbo says to Mussolini, let him go for he cannot possibly come back to bother us anymore. Oh, wow. That's dark. Yes, yeah, so it's really dark. It's really dark. Uh, and, and then Barbo refuses permission to let nobody take any seaplanes with him in, in case they crash as well. So he kind of, it starts to get quite dark. So they force him into taking the small, smallest airship. Smallest airship with no aircraft as backup. Wow. So, so you can, 
and then they won't give any government money, but you can raise money privately. So the city of Milan, which is a very proud Italian city, helped raise the funds for him. So, so he has to kind of. So when it does looks he? Like he's setting him up to fail. It does. It does. So when does he? It looks like a conspiracy a little bit, yeah. <laughs> like make his make his death look like an accident. That's a yeah. mafia move, kind of. So exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so when does he go on this second exploration? So he heads back up in the spring of 1928. But just before we say that, I just want to come back to one thing. We talked about the rights for media rights, how important they were. And they were raising money for this flight from the North American Newspaper Alliance, who paid $20,000 for the exclusive rights and more for the worldwide rights. The town's got more money if certain things happened. So they got more money. uh, The fee was doubled if they had a flight over and stop at the North Pole. The discovery of new lands and sensational episodes. And one of the sensational episodes which would earn them more money, bear in mind what I was saying about Amundsen, was a disappearance of the expedition for some days and a consequent alarm in the world. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, that's actually in the contract. So. That's intense. When we are in history class, sitting in our desks, learning about stuff like this, which, P.S., I did not have the privilege of learning anything about this. This is the first time that I'm learning about this. But when we do learn about these things... I mean, they are very one-dimensional. A man went and explored. There's no mention of the political pressures. There's no mention of the media fights. No mention of the personality conflicts. Like, history is so colorful, and it makes it so real. Because as you're describing it, I can imagine in my mind's eye, like, yeah, this sounds like the latest episode of The Bachelor, basically. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is, isn't it? I, I mean, it, it's very multi-layered and, and not the simplistic narratives that we're told. At no, it, when good, people point, look yeah. back and they say, ah, oh, simpler times. Were they, though? Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. Nobody sets off in April 1928 from Milan, who's funded his expedition up to Svalbard. But before he goes, he gives a speech. Uh, in Milan, uh, kind of the night before. I like to think it was the night before, but a big dinner for always funded. He says that our venture is difficult and dangerous, even more so than that of 1926 when he was with Amazon. But it's very difficulty and danger which attracts us. I mean, it could have been written in the 60s, couldn't it? Had it been safe and easy, other people would have already preceded us. But if our enterprise should be wrecked, then you'll see all these facile critics come forward, leaping for joy to tell you that they have foreseen it that things could have been otherwise, that it was only natural that this could happen. So very powerful speech, I suppose, foreshadowing what was to come. So they leave in April, early April 1928, and they eventually make it up to Svalbard by early May. And then they they kind of have to repair the airship because it's, it's a long journey to Svalbard, and then they get ready to make a number of flights. So what he wanted to do now was rather than just fly over the over the North Pole to Alaska, because that has been done before. Uh, you know, you're not going to get much publicity from that. It's still a number of flights, each more kind of daredevil, more hair-raising, more risky than, than the next. And the first flight doesn't go to plan because the weather is bad. The second flight, he goes really well, and he flies all the way along the coast of Siberia and back, discovers some new lands, takes lots of pictures, about 2,500 miles, which is astonishing for these kind of primitive aircraft. And even more impressive than his flight to Alaska, is longer than that flight really a bit longer was that he, he comes back to exactly the same place and for the primitive aircraft with a very primitive technology ability to navigate back to exactly the same spot in the map is really really hard but getting to alaska and landing somewhere in alaska okay is is dangerous but you know you're aiming for quite a big area of land so he does this amazing flight and even the norwegians go this is an amazing achievement but and tragedy is about to strike now because now he's got to do his shortest flight to the north pole which isn't, you know, it should be the easiest flight, only 500 miles. And he does it without much problems. So it looks it looks like this is, gonna, this is gonna be massive success. I'll just give you a little description of what happened. So for two hours, Spence built as a dirigible circle of the North Pole where it slowly descended through the clouds until the pack ice was visible. There was moments of disappointment when the crew could not land on the ice. I guess the scientists were probably very relieved. Nevertheless, in religious silence, the men made ready to complete the solemn duty entrusted to them by Pope Pius. At 400 feet, they dropped the Italian flag, the tricolor, onto the summit of the world, followed by the flag of the city of Milan, and finally the cross the pontiff had presented to them. And like all crosses, the Pope had said with a sad smile at the last audience, this one will be heavy to carry. With the jobs done, they put played the, put on the gramophone player on the airship, belted out the martial notes of the fascist party hymn, 
with the right arms raised and the fascist salute, the crew sang along heartily under the watchful eyes of a journalist from Mussolini's own paper. Singing rapidly gave way to cries of via nobly and the toast of eggnog. Few men in the world can say as we can that they have been twice to the North Pole. So there you go. Now is their time to head back. So you've got a real sense of the politics there, I think, and uh, and the surveillance the crew were perhaps under. Yes, yes. And the ceremony around it what yes. was really striking to me that it was not viewed as an urgent or emergency situation at all. It was a time for ceremony and for songs yeah. and for a cross and yeah, more flags. So, and so what happens after they are done singing and patting themselves on the back? <laughs> and drinking. <laughs> and, and drinking. I mean, a good time yes. at the top of the world. It must've been amazing, I guess. Well, all great situations. Nobody had three options then. He could fly on over the North Pole to Canada bit like the flight to Alaska, but the airship would just have to land, they'd have to run off and deflate it, and that would be it. That would be the end of their expedition. And he knew that Balbo would never give him another chance to do this again or build another airship. They could fly a long route home, avoiding the storms that is gradually forming behind them, because that's the thing, there's this big storm between them and Selvard. And they could fly back, avoiding the storm, very long route, very demanding route, but at least they'll get home, probably safely avoiding the storm. Or... You could fly back directly into the strong winds, into the storm, hoping that they would subside. So which route would you take, Meredith? What, which route do you think you would take? Oh, geez. Well, I'm not an explorer like that, so I would, you know, choose the least risky one. I don't know, the first option, maybe? Yeah, to Canada. Yeah, I mean, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd probably go for the long route back. That's almost as safe, but not quite. Yeah, maybe the but most they, inhabited, you know, below yeah. in case something went bad. That's a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think the Canada route was, was the safest option, and he had the maps with him to do that. But he's persuaded that the winds are going to subside, so he heads directly back to Svalbard into the storm, hoping in the belief that the winds are going to and the storm's going to fade away. Well, apparently he gets extra credit from the <laughs> Italian government for the drama, so he was incentivized. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I'm sure that pressure, you know, he hadn't managed to land anyone on the North Pole, which would earn more money, but a bit of a disappearance uh, would be good for the newspapers. Resurrection always makes for good paper, you know? It does, yeah. it does. Uh, so it doesn't go well. The storm gets worse, and in the early hours of May 25th, 1928, the airship crashes into the ice. Well, crash is a kind of funny word, because when I first read it, oh, I imagine it's massive wreckage. But when you actually look at the drawings and his description of it, actually what happens is the tail of the airship, the airship plummets down to the ice as they're trying to kind of climb. Uh, the tail of the airship hits, and the gondola a lot of the crew and equipment are thrown onto the ice, but the airship itself floats away with about half the crew in in the cabin, you know, in the envelope. Oh, some of them were actually uh, some of them were actually asleep, and they were woken up as it crashed. And there's a there's an account, you know, and you have to be careful on these accounts because they're kind of written afterwards of the survivors on the ice looking up and seeing the men in the envelope looking down and, and seeing on their faces the realization of what their fate was because they're in this airship there's no engines no no form of navigation no form of control and then they floated away never to be seen again oh my god the survivors were buried under found themselves buried under a tangled mass of metal and canvas when i was writing the book i thought they must have thought whether they were alive or dead i mean uh, and perhaps it was impossible to know buried under the remains. Uh, you could still see the shape of the cabin on the ice and strips of canvas fluttered in the in the breeze. Nobody wrote in his account, the pride of Italy, the pride of Italy was now a dreary note of grey against the whiteness of the snow. And he was really badly hurt. And then he describes how waking up, opening his eyes and seeing the sky filled above the crash site with a huge envelope of the airship on its side, the name Italia, which is the name of the airship, was visible in black big black capital letters, and then free of human control, the airship slowly rose skyward into the bank of fog like the balloon it had now become, its, its prow pointing up as if it was taking off again, which in a way it was, but now the engines were useless and, and people were doomed. Wow. So it's a pretty kind of awful situation. How long before the first rescue attempt happened? They eventually find them about three weeks, three, four weeks later, even though they've been broadcasting on this radio, they had this portable radio, they, they couldn't, no one seemed to be able to hear them. Survivors could hear 
everyone else looking in all the wrong places. It must have been horrible. Oh, hearing your rescuers looking in the wrong place. And there's even there's even people saying they were survivors broadcasting fake messages to divert the, the rescuers' attention. It must have been it must have been horrible. It was in mid-June when they were eventually spotted. Uh, and then it'll be another month nearly for them to be rescued. Other than one man. One man was rescued first, and that was nobody himself. And this is, I suppose, the last part, really, one of the tragedies of the story. He he is rescued first. He's allowed, I suppose he's persuaded, he allows himself to be persuaded to be rescued first. I, I feel air injured. quotes around that. I feel like, like that's what I would say too if I was <laughs> yeah, the leader yeah, exactly. and I was rescued first. I'd be like, oh, they persuaded me exactly. that I should go first. But anyway, sorry, continue. No, no, no. I think that's a good point. I mean, it does sound it's, very much like yeah. that. But to, to be fair to him, he's really badly injured in the crash. He's exhausted from the flight. Uh, he must be really disorientated. But he must have known what it meant to, to leave his men on the ice. Uh, and, and of course, he gives Italio Balbo, his enemy back in Rome, the perfect weapon, I guess. You know, so he goes back, he's rescued first, he leaves his men on the ice, and his own government starts spreading rumours about his cowardice. Uh, that's his own government's incredible to discredit him. And that's basically his, his reputation ruined, in a way. Uh, he never never recovers from the... Even though you could defend it, you know, perhaps he was needed to, to kind of coordinate the rescue mission, it never recovers you know, from leaving his men on the ice. That's it, really. And the other tragedy, while, is, while that is taking place, is that, well, just before that took, takes place, Armisen, uh, who's not allowed anywhere near their rescue attempt, Mussolini, I suppose his final revenge, he stops Armisen having any part in the rescue effort to find nobly, goes solo, you know, and finds an experimental French aircraft to take him and some of his friends up, up into the Arctic Circle to try and find nobly. I guess he imagined the idea of landing on the ice reaching his hand down and his, and his kind of nemesis <laughs> and he would pull his nemesis off. It must have been a delicious idea. Or, or there's stories that he was depressed. He'd given away a lot of his money, his medals. He'd, he'd sorry, given away his medals. He, he'd settled his financial debts. Perhaps there was something else going on there as well. He'd been ill and he didn't even get his favourite, I think it was a cigarette lighter, his favourite cigarette lighter fixed before his life. And he gave it to his friend. So there's perhaps there's something else going there on there as well. But anyway, he takes off from northern Norway to fly to Svalbard because it's a few years uh, since, you know, three years since 1925. And some of these seaplanes uh, and kind of flying boats can now make the journey in one go. He refuses to go with anyone else, though. So there's still that kind of man of mystery. He wants to be his kind of lone wolf, I guess, idea. And the last time he's seen is flying into a fog bank a cloud, a huge cloud bank by some uh, fishermen, and he's never seen ever again. He disappears. You think it was suicide? I suppose, I mean, it'd be awful if it was, because he took all these other people with him. But I mean, there was something, obviously, one reading of his last days was that he didn't ex expect to come back or didn't want to come back. So perhaps it was a feeling he had. Who knows? I mean, the plane was an experimental plane, and there were lots of things wrong with it. And, and it's since been discovered that the French crew, who are kind of heroic French aviators, knew the plane wasn't suitable for flying in the Arctic. Uh, but they knew there were problems with the engines. It was, was it, wasn't powerful enough. But because of their patriotic duty, they couldn't raise any of these issues mm. in public. So, that, so they went along because they were ordered to, even though they suspected themselves that the plane wouldn't wouldn't make it so these are such like extreme highs and extreme lows like yeah, the absolutely. the celebration and the drinking on the eye you know i i just imagine all of these huge spikes and then and then it just is so dark in the other parts of the story absolutely and it's about to get darker still i think oh goody uh, <laughs> <laughs> so they're on the ice and it's and nobody's saved but everyone else is kind of stuck there. It gets aviators start getting worried about landing on the ice because it's so dangerous, so rough, or even landing on the water. Would they ever be able to take off again? Would they become trapped with along with the crew? And then after Amundsen disappears, a lot of the effort starts to kind of be redeployed to search for him because after all, they know where the crew of the Italia is. And thankfully, there's a Russian icebreaker on the way. So perhaps they don't need to lift, airlift them off, don't need to take that risk. So they get kind of, not forgotten, but they get kind of sideshowed a little bit in, in, the, whole, in the whole media narrative, I guess. 
all the time this Russian icebreaker is plowing through the ice. Largest ship ever to go that far north in the Arctic Circle. Amazingly gets to within 100 yards uh, of, of the survivors by kind of July the 12th. So it gets to within, you know, within spitting distance of the survivors. And, and there's amazing pictures of the survivors, the tent, and this huge, huge kind of dreadnought-like ship. But on the way, they find some other survivors because way back when the radio wasn't working, or people didn't think the radio was working, three men decided to walk out over the ice. So I mentioned about how the explorer's fallback position is always, we're going to walk out over the ice. So these three guys decided to do it, even though it was probably suicidal. Because you could see some of the islands, rocky islands that were around there from the ice. So it must have been really tempting to. So they, so they headed off and very quickly discovered the wind was blowing in the opposite direction. So the more they walked, the further they walked, the, the more the wind was blowing them, the further the walk they had to make because the wind kept blowing them back. It must have been incredibly disheartening. And they were getting weak, they were getting injured. And when the crasser picked them up, there was actually only two men left. There's no sign of the third man. And one of the two who survived looked suspiciously well-fed. Uh, <laughs> And the first thing he wanted was not food, as you might expect after having been on the sea ice for you know, over a month, was a cup of coffee, which is not kind of a hot beverage. It's not what, what you would imagine people would want. You'd want food. And he was also wearing the dead man's clothes, which is a bit odd. Oh. The second guy, you know, uh, the, the second guy was near death. Uh, was ex desperately ill, desperately cold. And apparently he said to the doctors and nurses who, who rescued him, he screamed allegedly, "Don't let, don't let him eat me!" Oh no! No, we have to take this as a kind of—it's an awful story. Uh, and, the, and the Soviets immediately launched an investigation into the behaviour of the fascists. So straight away, there you've got a geopolitical element to it. I imagine there's nothing more the Soviets, the communists, wanted to do was to rescue fascists off the ice, be the ones to rescue them, which the whole Western world had failed to be able to achieve. And then, secondly. The fact that they discovered that the fascists had been eating each other must be <laughs> there must have been a wonderful propaganda right. opportunity. So you start going, well, is this true? You know, and the other thing was I Googled cannibalism in the kind of archive of all the newspapers in, in North America, and there's so many stories about cannibalism at the time. You know, there's something people were kind of quite interested in cannibalism or pulled by it, or so there was something compelling about it that was very popular at the time. So did it actually happen? Was this guy eaten? Did the Soviets make it, make it up? You know, did the newspapers, did the authors make this up? It's difficult to say. Although the, the one piece of evidence that something might untoward might have happened was that the Italians very quietly gave uh, the widow of the man a pension afterwards, which you know hints that something hadn't something hadn't gone down, which was very good, really. So wow, that well, you know the um, the Argentinian rugby team. What was that in the seventies? Yeah, yeah, I mean they, they, yeah, they did that. They uh, re resorted to cannibalism. So, well, as we wrap up, I'm, I have a couple of personal questions on your reflection Ooh. of all of this, and one of them is, as an explorer yourself, what what parts of Nobile and Amundsen's character or story do you relate yeah. to the most? Not the cannibalism. I, Thank I have to God. Say. <laughs> okay, good. Now, I, <laughs> whew, that's that's good. I suppose having been to the Arctic and a few places like that, I think it's the compulsion that drives you onwards, uh, to, and the compulsion to return. Because I, you know, after I came back from researching the book and finding these archives in in Tronzo, and all I wanted to do was to go back. Of course, I couldn't because I was writing the book, but. If I could have done anything, I would have just headed straight back to the Arctic. Really? There's something about that place. Something's, I don't know, but it's spiritual, something utterly compelling. So I can I can see why these explorers kept wanting to go back. You know, it kind of really drills down into your soul, I think. That's so uh, surprising. I wouldn't have guessed that. So you're saying outside of the information that you got from, you know, finding the lost manuscripts and f meeting the last living person to know these folks outside of all of that there was some other unnameable thing that drew you to the arctic absolutely i think so yeah wow drew me back i think 
well, I, well, I didn't go, I haven't been able to go back. So, but I wanted to. Well, that's I, every time I felt stressed, I'd close my eyes and I would actually think about the Arctic. So, wow, that's incredible. And the whiteness, yeah. Well, that is the perfect segue for me to ask, what's next for you? We're talking to some publishers about a new book, so I can't really say much beyond that. But hopefully, it'll be it won't be a sequel, but hopefully, it'll be in a similar kind of have a similar kind of vibe. And I'm writing uh, for the BBC Future, so it's always good to check BBC Future, amazing uh, website as a freelancer, I should add. Uh, and I'm writing out some feature article for the Smithsonian, uh, a kind of air and space magazine, uh, and all my work. And I check out what I'm posting on Twitter and on my website, markpising.com. And what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Mark Pising, very unoriginal. Oh, that's good. That's easy to remember. How can people what? find your book? What's the easiest place to purchase it? In the States, it should be in Barnes & Noble, the last time I looked, and many independent bookshops, and of course on Amazon, bookshop.org, and so on. Uh, in other countries, uh, in the UK, uh, just on Amazon and Blackwells and Waterstones, not in the sh actual shops. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. This has been amazing. Well, well thank you very much, Meredith. It's been a fantastic opportunity to be able to talk about it. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Special thank you to today's guest host, Meredith Edwards. Uh, check out her show, Meredith For Real. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And also, special thank you to our new producer, Josh Collins, who is responsible for all of the sound editing and incredible effects you hear throughout the show, as well as the much-needed improvement in our audio quality. 